Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Willie Inman is a 21-year-old who liked to practice shooting on his down-at-heel family ranch deep in the Arizona countryside. Recently claiming to be back from serving as a soldier in Iraq, he was on edge when police called by. They start pounding on the door, and with me being so jumpy from the service, they're lucky I didn't come to the door with my gun. You like guns? Yes, I do. What, what kind do you have? I've got a Walter P-22. I got a M-14. I've got three shotguns. Willie's friend, Ricky Flores, 16, missing from home. He'd gone AWOL before, but had promised to mend his ways. It didn't make sense that he was gone and he wasn't coming home. So that was uh, the first clue that something wasn't right. A lot didn't add up for local detectives in this remote part of Apache County. We both had the same feeling that Ricky was hurt or that he was dead. I knew it wasn't good. He didn't hang out with the best crowd of people. Nick Flores' brother Ricky hung out with Willie Inman, the guy with a hurt trigger. One day, Inman walked into a police station and started talking. Did detectives have a killer in custody? And was he responsible for the murder of two other men? I didn't suspect any foul play or anything. There was a little bit of blood that was outside of his mouth and some uh, blood pooled up in his uh, left ear. We know that, you know, if you've done something bad, the worst thing in the world is for you to have to carry it the rest of your life. The rules of engagement were in place. Cop seeking the truth. Killer, a skilled liar. If I was to do such atrocity, I could be out there getting rid of it and you would never know. Detectives gather evidence until a picture of a suspect emerges. Which piece of the puzzle will reveal Willie Inman as guilty of murder? What would be the killer's mistake? should die that way. I've never seen anything that horrific. One of the duties of a pathologist is to determine the cause of death. Watch on mobile devices or the big screen. All for free. No subscription required. Download Beely now. Make sure to like and subscribe. Apache County, an area of ranches and small communities like St. John's. Population 3,200. It's a small town. There's not a lot of people. Everybody knows everybody. It's a good place to live if you don't like a lot of company. 
but unfortunately, you know, bad things happen everywhere, and just happened to be to my family here in St. John's, Arizona. Ricky Flores, Nick's brother, was murdered. His head was blown off with a 12-gauge shotgun. Ricky had last been seen alive with this man, Willie Inman. He lived on a ranch just outside St. John's. Willie's girlfriend, Stormy, lived in Springerville, 29 miles away, different police jurisdiction. Something which would loom large in the story of William Inman. Willie walked into Springerville Station on a hot August morning just five weeks after his buddy Ricky was first reported missing. When he got there, he insisted on seeing the chief of police himself, Steve West. I sat down with Mr. Inman and we started talking, just general talk. Chief West knew nothing about the missing Ricky Flores. Why would he? Flores was a St. John's matter. This was Springerville. Like a lot of communities, we still have crime, we just don't have as much of it. Uh, you know, children still walk, you know, to the stores. They still uh, uh, go to the movie theater by themselves. Chief West was as in the dark as anyone about Ricky Flores as he sat opposite Willie Inman. During a nine-hour interview session which followed, there would be many revelations. As well as a love for guns, Willie Inman shared views with Nazis. He showed his fascination by donning Nazi insignias on his baseball cap. Wow. My grandpa was the greatest Luftwaffe pilot any pilot ever existed. Only one to receive over 1,200 kills. Willie had a deep sense of what he believed was wrong, was right, was bad, or good. And he wanted to rid the world of what he saw as undesirables. I try to be as law-abiding as possible. The first time that I knew about the case was when we got a press release about the disappearance of Ricky Flores. Karen Warnock is the local reporter who covered the story of Ricky's disappearance. We've had other missing people in the area occasionally, um, and at the time it didn't really strike a chord. It was just another juvenile disappearance. My brother went missing in uh, August of 2009. No one really knew what was happening or what was going on. No one in my family knew. What was confusing to the Flores family about Ricky's disappearance was that he had turned over a new leaf. He'd been something of a wild child until recently. My brother just uh, got out of juvenile and uh, instead of staying in there longer, he decided to take one year probation for some minor drug charges and stuff. And he was working on himself and his life. And he was starting to realize that he couldn't just keep off and uh, he was really trying to work on himself and he was a good person. St. John's detective Lucas Rodriguez knew all about Ricky and liked him despite his adolescent ways. Ricky Flores, good kid, a little bit rebellious. Um, he has been in trouble, mostly I would say a lot of it mostly the juvenile only juveniles can get in trouble with. Curfews, um, smoking, and maybe a little drinking. He has done some, a little bit of drugs. Um, lost some fighting with his mom. And by fighting, I don't mean 
punches, I mean verbally and not wanting to listen to mom and stuff like wanting to be his own, own man and stuff like that. And he decided that, you know, enough was enough and told my mom that he wanted counseling and he wanted to uh, just do some programs to help him through it. I mean, he's a young kid. He doesn't know what's going on and he's just trying to have fun. How would Officer Rodriguez sum up the character of Ricky Flores around that time? Ricky does have a good heart. He does care about his mom, does care about his brothers and family and stuff like that. He, he just likes to do his own thing and doesn't want to, people to tell him, but he is in the process of uh, changing his life, changing his, um, he just has a new kid. Uh, now he knows he has to be responsible and change his ways. It's not just about him anymore. What had changed Ricky for the better was fatherhood. He wanted to do good and he wanted to take care of his newborn baby. Ricky, Hispanic, had a white girlfriend called Jessica Johnson, now the mother of his child. They all knew Ricky was behaving himself, so why would he suddenly disappear? I was called by dispatch and asking me to meet uh, Mauda Flores. And she had reported him missing for, had been a week now and still had not heard back from anybody and still had not uh, known, heard from Ricky. Ricky, she said, never left without his phone charger and always checked in, even on bender days when he'd get high, but not this time. So it didn't make sense that he was gone and he wasn't coming home. So that was uh, the first clue that something wasn't right. Well, I knew it wasn't good. He didn't hang out with the best crowd of people. People like Willie Inman. William Inman was just uh, another person that hung around my house. He was friends with my brother. My mom fed him. She gave him food. She gave him clothes if he needed them. Willie referred to Mauda as mom. So, hey, mom, I'm taking uh, Ricky out to uh, the ranch. We're going to shoot or something, go shooting or something like that. And Ricky said, hey, mom, I'll be back in a little while. Ricky and said, yeah, no problem, son, and uh, saw them jump in the Jeep and take off. And she waved goodbye to Ricky with Inman by his side. They went to Willie's ranch, met up with his girlfriend, Stormy Williams. She said that was the last time she saw Ricky and heard from Ricky. Willie Inman picked up Ricky Flores, and they were friends, and he took them out to his property out east of St. John's. Officer Rodriguez brought Willie into St. John's police station for questioning. Where is Ricky, he asked. Willie told me that indeed Ricky was at the ranch with him and that um, they had gone, talked about, he talked to, to him about drugs and to stay away from drugs and stuff like that. It was to be a recurring theme in the interrogation of Willie Inman. He was a good guy, helping out a teenage kid with good advice during target practice. Willie had no idea where Ricky was. But detectives didn't believe him. And Ricky's brother, Nick, was not hopeful either. He liked to party and he liked to get in trouble. He hung out with older people. So uh, I figured it wasn't anything too good why he was missing. Detectives in St. John's did not believe Willie Inman's story and suspected him in a murder of Ricky Flores. Now, could they get him to admit it? If there was an accident, 
something went wrong. Self-defense, whatever the reason was, I'm going to give you one chance, one time, sitting here in front of the chief, to tell me why it happened. Over the days and weeks following the disappearance of Ricky Flores, Officer Lucas Rodriguez was to meet with Willie Inman often. He'd ask the same question. I mean, Willie, come on, tell me where Ricky is. Uh, as the interview progressed, I can see a lot of deception signs on, on uh, Willie. His carotid artery, I've never seen, but his carotid artery was literally bouncing. Um, he started sweating, he started getting hot, he didn't fidgeting, he started, um, he actually took his shirt off saying it was too hot in there. I was in uniform and it was not hot, I had a vest on and I was comfortable. He, um, he was just, I just could not get him to tell me what had happened to Ricky. Um, I asked him, I remember asking him if, um, if I was going to find Ricky alive and Willie said, he hoped so. It was soon after one such interview that Inman left St. John's police station. He headed over to Springerville to meet up with his girlfriend, Stormy, 18 years older, with educational difficulties. Detective Rodriguez wasn't giving up easily and called on the couple there, along with a colleague, Deputy Morales. Still no answers. We thank Willie and Stormy for talking to us, told him we'll get back in touch with us because we were looking for Ricky. And they said, yeah, no problem. Uh, Deputy Morales and I left, and on our way back into town, me and him were talking. We both had the same feeling that Ricky was hurt or that he was dead. As for Willie, he'd grown tired of Lucas Rodriguez and the St. John's Police Department. He headed to the chief of police, Steve West, over at Springerville. Help me out, chief. Get these guys off my back. What St. John's PD is asking you is they're asking you if you know the whereabouts of Ricky. Correct. And what's Ricky's last name? Flores. Flores. Okay, so they're asking you if you know the whereabouts of Ricky Flores. Uh, they're saying what? That you were the last one to see him? Correct. Right. And that um, I know something, and they keep pressuring me like I do know something, which if I didn't, I would tell them because I want them off my bat. So I'm tired of being harassed. They have no right coming to my girl's house, no right whatsoever. And um, last time they came here, they came here without a sheriff escort. They came in their St. John's police car out of jurisdiction. Uh oh. Uh -huh. And they've broken the law. They searched her next door neighbor's house, and which this is Stormy's next door. Yeah, house? correct. Which they had no right being in his yard. Willie Inman had made a big mistake. He believed one of the police forces in Apache County would not support another in a missing person inquiry which was increasingly feeling like a murder investigation. Normally it's for a chief of police not to to get involved in a case is kind of rare, but since he had already struck a rapport with Willie, we allowed continued um, Steve to con continue talking to Willie. Still, no one knew where Ricky Flores was. But if he had been murdered by Inman, investigators needed to find a body, establish motive and method. That last part would prove straightforward. Inman was a trained gunman whose best friends were the guns that he fired out on his ranch. 
Were you ever, were you, when you were in the military, were you, were you ever dispatched overseas? Yes, sir. Oh, is that right? Where did you fight? Iraq. Oh, did you? Yes, sir. Where was the first place you were deployed over there? First place was Fallujah. Uh-huh. And then from there we moved downwards, and then it was the uh, sniper alley I mainly was on, which was a six-mile stretch between the Green Zone and Baghdad Airport. Steve West was employing a softly, softly approach and was getting results. Invent had almost certainly revealed how he had killed Ricky Flores by shooting him. But if he had, what was his motive? It was really strange because Mr. Inman, he had uh, this affinity, number one, as far as being calm, to why he was there. He didn't seem upset about that at all. But the other thing was he had this uh, affinity to talk about Nazism. And the way he did that is he did the, the Nazism, and, and the way it came out was on his baseball cap, he had uh, some Nazi insignias, some little medals on there. Inman, who cherished his German heritage, claimed that his grandfather was a crack Luftwaffe pilot who'd fought a just war. The final solution. Mm -hmm. Seriously. I totally understand going after the Jews for bankrupting our country and trying to steal the world and everything they do and believe in. And we needed our money back. And as Chief West sweet-talked Willie, Officer Rodriguez was listening to a different story. He'd asked Willie's girlfriend, Stormy, to call by Springerville Police Station. Her arrival was the turning point in the investigation. She'd been with Willie when he had returned to his ranch with Ricky. It was decided to tell uh, Stormy that Willie was, had confessed to the homicide. Stormy actually started talking and said yes they had killed Ricky and went into detail on how they had killed him and how they had taken him back to town and how they had buried him. Until the moment that Inman entered Springfield Station he had revealed no mistakes in the murder of Ricky Flores. Now he was regretting ever asking Chief West for protection from those St. John's cops who'd stepped out of line. It had resulted in his girlfriend giving them both away. What had happened down on the ranch? Just tell us, tell us what happened, Willie. That's the biggest thing. Run us, run us through it. Oh my God. Well, I mean, stuff happens. We know that. Yes. I'm telling you, I did not want to kill the kid. It was not. It was not murder. I can tell you that much. Okay. Oh God, I can't believe it. Just tell us Well, that's okay. Yeah, just tell us the story. Inman claimed that he and Ricky had got into an argument whilst at target practice on Inman's ranch. But Ricky had fired first. This ended up as self-defense. Something happened. We finally got him to, to admit that he indeed did. Uh, uh, shoot this kid. Now the way he said he shot him was this. He said they were both out at the site east of St. John's and that they were out there and they were target practicing. And they started uh, shooting cans and whatnot and Ricky wanted to uh, shoot the rifle and so he let him shoot the rifle and Mr. Inman said that he was standing by his car and a bullet hit the window next to him. 
he said that he took that as an aggressive move and he got his rifle and started firing at Ricky. He shot at me, I shot back. Willie did disclose that the homicide had actually occurred at, at his ranch. I believe he shot him in the head. I had a single-gauge shotgun, and he had my M14, and he took a shot at me, and I shot him. As the real-life drama unfolded, it seemed the case was closed. Of course, by then, he was in tears. You know, he, he, was, he was acting semi-remorseful. And the way that we got that interview out of him was basically saying, hey, you know, people do bad things, you know, please, you know, we know that, you know, if you've done something bad, the worst thing in the world is for you to have to carry it the rest of your life, you know, you need to come clean on that so that your conscience will be clear. And we went on and on and on, and finally that's when he admitted that. God, I can't believe this. I'm going to go away from murder. I'm just fucking done. Willie, you need to settle down. We need to get all the facts so that we can determine what's happened here. Okay? We need you to stay together for us. We're not your enemies. Please, I need some tobacco, please. My God, I can't believe this. At first, Willie stuck to his self-defense story. But was he telling the truth? Was this really a case of self-defense? Ricky's girlfriend, Jessica Johnson, had a father who did not like Hispanic boys. Like Ricky Flores. I believe at one point, Mr. Johnson and Melissa Johnson, the mom of Jessica Johnson, got a restraining order against Ricky and not allowed him to come around and be around Jessica. Well, it didn't matter because Jessica loved Ricky and she would sneak out of the house as well and go meet with him and vice versa. And Jessica had just recently given birth to a child, which is belonged to Ricky. It was even rumored that Jeff Johnson, Jessica's dad, was connected to a white supremacist group, one that Willie was all too afraid of. Or dead either way. As he goes down... There's too many out there. They are too smart. They will find me. They will kill me. What other damaging evidence which might implicate others would emerge from the interview room? Was Willie Inman a hired gun working for a racist? Throughout Texas and Arizona, a neo-Nazi group called the Aryan Brotherhood has been carrying out drugs and gun-running crimes for decades. Exclusively white, its so-called captains exert a violent influence over its members. Fraternization with non-whites is forbidden. Detectives throughout the Apache County area suspected Jeffrey Johnson, father of Ricky Flores' girlfriend, of involvement with the Brotherhood. Police now had a theory which would blow Inman's self-defense claims out of the water. It would not look good to Mr. Johnson that, since he's a white supremacist, that uh, his daughter had a kid from a Hispanic kid and did not want, he wanted, basically he wanted uh, Ricky gone and had offered to pay money for that. Had Jeffrey Johnson ordered a hit on the boyfriend of his daughter. Another detective entered the room. I understand the white supremacist swastikas. I know every tattoo on the guy's body. I know all about this guy right now. I've known about him for a long time. 
taking care of him and take care of yourself. He knew you were going to murder him, and he was supposed to pay you. I know that. Tell me the truth, please. Willie was not about to give evidence against Jeff Johnson in a murder crime. Listen, he wanted me to beat his ass, yes. He didn't want no death, no killing. And I thought about it, but no. These were the facts established. After the murder of Ricky, Inman and Stormy Williams drove at speed from his ranch into St. John's and headed straight for Jeffrey Johnson's house. He drove his body through the town of St. John's to Jeffrey Johnson's house. The whole reason for Willie bringing the body over into town in the beginning, of just instead of just going through the back roads and going away from town, was that he came over and showed proof to Mr. Johnson that he had actually taken care of the job and killed uh, Ricky. My niece was probably sitting there, you know, just a couple months old, and you know her dad's body is in the back of a Suzuki Samurai, and uh, her biological grandfather is going out there to look at it. Why did you take the body to Jeff's house? Because I was scared. I wanted to know. I, Tell me exactly what you told Jeff when you got to his house. I told Jeff, dude, I, he's in my car. You, you want to come look? Dude, I need some help. What the hell am I going to do? His words were exactly, get the f*** out of here and I don't want to see you again. That was his words. William said that Mr. Johnson gave him a bunch of, got mad at him for bringing the body and that um, got $20 from him for gas and that was all and he took off. Had Jeffrey Johnson made a flippant, angry comment about wishing Ricky dead and Willie taken it at face value. Inman left, drove up to the Elk Ranch, found a deserted spot, dug a shallow grave and set Ricky's body alight. Storm E. Williams told detectives enough for them to find it. Well, uh, his body was burned so bad and his head was blown off with a 12-gauge shotgun, so there wasn't too much to be looking at. So they had to identify him by a homemade tattoo he had on his ankle, and he also broken his arm pretty severely and got some pins and plates in it. So that's how they identified his body, because there wasn't too much to, uh, to say that this person was who he was. Inman repeatedly refused to say that the murder was anything to do with Jeff Johnson. Why are you so afraid of Jeff? What do you know about him that scares you so bad, look? I know the Aryan Brotherhood. There's too many out there. He gets one message through to anybody. I will be dead. That's guaranteed. I know how they roll. He goes down, I will go down. So you're covering, you don't have to admit to it, but you are covering his ass because you're afraid of death. Tell me that, much. I'm afraid of death, period. Willie did not testify in court that he had acted on the instructions of anyone. Jeff Johnson and his wife, Melissa, would stand trial for hindering the prosecution in the case of the murder of Ricky Flores. I think his charges were correct because he had knowledge and he, he did nothing to try to slow that down. But also I think that by sure virtue 
of it taking place, I think that was a shock to him also. Jeff Johnson was sentenced to seven years in prison. Melissa Johnson was given probation. As for Willie's girlfriend, Storm E. Williams, she had been with Willie when he killed Ricky, had helped him move the body. But the mental well-being issues that she faced meant that she would never be charged. Wasn't a person who could think on her own. That she, uh, she would make a decision to do something, and uh, if she felt like it you know, made Willie happy or you know, Willie wanted her to do it, she'd do it. You know, she, she wasn't a crazy person. She was just uh, really gullible and would do anything to, you know, make William Inman happy. So that appeared to be the full story of what had happened out on Inman's Ranch and later in St. John's and Elk Ranch. A teenager shot, his body paraded in front of his child's grandfather before being burned and partially buried. Willie even drew for detectives where the partial burial took place. But that was far from the end of the William Inman murder story. Detectives were still unable to find the gun that he had used to kill Ricky. He asked him about the gun, you know, what happened to it. He had indicated that he had thrown it in the sewer pond over in, in uh, St. John's. Not having the murder weapon felt like a loose end. Perhaps it had been used in other crimes. In St. John's County, there had been a suspicious death two years earlier, and another person had gone missing that same year. The suspicious death was of William McGarriger, known as Stoney, a 72-year-old who'd been found dead in his trailer in 2007. Did Inman know anything? There's another case I want to talk to you about. The clock is running. If you can help us on that murder... I have no idea on that at all. I do not. He and me, Stoney was murdered, and that was quite some time ago. How'd you hear about it? First, I was uh, laying down, and I got a phone call. And um, the uh, my dad told me. That's how I first found out. Six hours after Willie Inman had asked Chief West for help, he had confessed to killing Ricky Flores. Now he was a suspect in another murder. But how would detectives get the evidence for that crime if indeed he was guilty? had happened in the William Inman story. Stoney McGarriger was a loner who lived out in the woods near St. John's. His ranch was right next door to Ricky's. Real estate salesman Louis Lerer helped buy the property for him. Stoney, um, I met him when he first came up to St. John's. He was a character, and he didn't trust a whole lot of people. And if you betray betrayed his trust, then, oh, all hell broke loose. And, uh, and he, 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 you made him mad, he'd get in your face, he'd go nose to nose with you, and he'd scream at you, and, and make, oh gosh, he was dramatic, but... He was a character, and he was a caring kind, caring type of character once you were in his inner circle. Unpopular with many, Stoney McGarriger had faced some difficult times. He'd lost his wife and a young son in a tragic accident. As a result, he was depressed and an alcoholic by 2007. He mentioned suicide to his friend Louis on numerous occasions, said he was drinking himself to death. He would not touch a $50 bill, because when he lost his wife and his two sons, 
many years earlier, he had been hoarding money and all he had was $50 bills. And so that freaked him out. To, he wouldn't accept it for payment. He wouldn't carry it. Stoney, mistrusting of the bank, hoarded money in his home. People, including William Inman, knew all about that. One day in 2007, Louis LaRue was to be plunged into a drama all of his own. I had been out of town uh, during that day. I'd been up in Pine Top, and uh, a couple of people had contacted me and said, hey, we've been needing to get a hold of Stoney. He's not responding. He's not getting back with us. Um, we're concerned about him. Louis headed out to the ranch. So I went in there, and I, I found him. He was laying on his right side like he always slept with his arm up above the, the blanket. And then um, when I got over to him, he was, he was kind of gray color and cold and stiff. I realized he was dead. Um, not expecting anybody to be murdered. Nobody had been murdered in St. John's in decades and decades. The real estate salesman was in for a shock. Stoney McGarriger was shot in his bed. While he was sleeping. He had been murdered uh, and been shot, and the homicide had gone unsolved since 2007. Detectives knew Inman was a neighbor of McGarriger. When still talking after the Flores revelations, one officer threw out a question. Back to the Stony deal. No, you don't know anything about that? No, sir. Help yourself out. No, sir. I no knowledge of that murder at all. A reward had been offered for information about the death of Stoney. Willie knew all about it. He would certainly have cooperated if he could. If I did, I'd be collecting money. So me and my brother did. And what did you say, you and your brother? Me and my brother were trying to uh, figure out who did because we wanted the money because we were hurting bad at that time. Right. With a population of just 3,200, St. John's had two murders on its hands, and only one solved. St. John's, you never expected anything like that. It's just a, a nice little community. When the, 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 the phrase is uh, St. John's uh, is a town of friendly neighbors, and that's pretty well what it is. Um, to have something like that happen is shocking. Investigators had come up with nothing over the two years since the murder of Stoney McGarriger, but for now, they asked no more of Willie Inman. Soon, at a case review, Willie Inman's name came up in relation to an old motoring offense, and another mystery was born. Willie had been stopped in a Camaro, a really nice Camaro. No plates, and the car had been impounded, and... But the car was... I believe the car was still impounded. Nobody had taken it out. That had been months prior to this prior to Ricky being missing. And we started coming to a conclusion as to, okay, where's the owner for stuff like that. One officer remembered the vehicle, gave a report. I used to see this guy, and I think his name is Daniel, I used to drive it all the time, and I haven't seen him in a while. Daniel Acton, a Vietnam War veteran and another whose ranch was adjacent to Willie Inman's. I knew that he had not been around, and... Um, People were asking about him and things. I hadn't seen him, but, uh, but Daniel was a, a real nice guy. Who nobody had seen for a while. Police wanted answers to the mysteries out in Apache County. Well, we need to still get stony, and we still have, you still guys have a missing person that the car is still an impound, and that needs to be 
be um, solved and um, we need to find out where the person is that, that they were driving the car. I told him, well, that's where you got to go and that's kind of where, where, where this needs to be. Two dead men, one confession and a missing man. And they all had one thing in common. They lived on or next to the ranch of William Nicholas Inman. They'd got a confession once. What would it take for detectives to get the truth out of Willie Inman a second time? And was there actually a link between the three deaths? I don't think it was connected. I don't think in the beginning the disappearance of Ricky and the disappearance of Daniel or the death of Stoney, the murder of Stoney, was related. And if Willie Inman was in custody not suspected of the murder of Stoney, that left just one conclusion. We have a killer loose in the community. Was Daniel Acton a victim of murder? He was missing and his car was in a police pound, having last been driven by William Inman. Acton was not the grumpy old guy that the murdered Stoney McGarriger was. Unlike him, Acton had no enemies. I knew Daniel um, as, as best as anybody did. Um, Daniel was, uh, I'm hard of hearing. Daniel was totally deaf. Once in a while he'd hear a word, but he read lips. It wouldn't take long for Willie to confess now that he'd started. Throughout the interview with Chief Steve West, Willie seemed eager to please. He was a good guy. He'd wanted to help Ricky. The kid just wouldn't listen. That was Willie's story. Corporal Inman was a former army man. He could be trusted. He did give up his rights to an attorney in order for us to talk to him the second time. And it was it was almost like something you'd see in prison in the fact that he was willing to give up information for stuff on the second interview. If we got him cigarettes, he would talk to us. If we got him a hamburger, he would talk to us. So during that discussion, it was like, well, yeah, you know, lunchtime's coming up. We'll get you a hamburger. We'll, we'll talk to you about it, you know, yada, yada, yada. And he did. Willie had admitted that he had murdered Ricky Flores. He'd had good reason. The kid was fooling around with drugs. During the second interrogation, Inman decided to trade. He'd agreed to the interview in exchange for a hamburger. Now he was going to up the stakes. He traded the truth for his life. If the police did not seek the death penalty, he would tell all. A deal was struck. Willie would not face execution in exchange for a full confession. He admitted finally that he had killed Stoney McGarrigar. After shooting Stoney 12 times through his window, Willie ransacked the house, stole some of the money that McGarriger kept hidden. But there was something else that Willie claimed. Stoney had inappropriately touched Inman once. He was probably a child molester. And he actually said that they deserved to die. And he took officers out into the deepest part of the Elk Ranch to show where he had buried the body of Danny Acton. His crime? The deaf man couldn't hear what Willie could each evening. Yeah, Daniel, the main reason that uh, he wanted to do something about that was because of his barking dog. Yeah, he couldn't get the barking dog shut up. Willie ended up taking us. I remember going with Willie. He agreed that I, it was okay for me to go and follow him as he took us to the ranch where he had killed Ricky. He took us to the place where, um, uh, where uh, Daniel Ekman had been killed, and then he took us to where Stoney had been killed and how he killed Stoney. Inman, the former military man, the gun nut, had been seeking police protection, but it ended up bringing a naive accomplice in front of persuasive police detectives and then admitted three murders. 
murders that he felt he was justified in committing. He wanted to rid the world of people who he felt shouldn't be in this world. So he had a, a grievance against those men. So he took it upon himself to be the one to get rid of them, to make the world better. Indeed, he styled himself as a vigilante. He was branded a serial killer, a vigilante killer, the youngest serial killer in the country. He did this with, with malice. He knew where he was going. He knew what he was doing. He knew how he was going to do it. He planned it, staged it, and, and, and completed it. So if that isn't vigilanteism, nothing is. And he's doing it for a cause that he think, thinks is right, you know, whether it was barking dogs, whether it was because they're a dope, dope slinger, or whether they were uh, uh, a child molester or whatever. He, he always had this reason in the back of his mind for doing that. Once he started talking, Willie Inman couldn't stop. He'd wanted to avoid detection as a killer, but made the mistake of surrendering himself in the belief that he was too clever to be caught out. Willie, when he talks to you, when you talk to him, he can be looking at you, but you can feel like he's looking into your soul, kind of like, like a scary type of uh, demeanor that Willie has. He never showed remorse, never... I don't. I think he would just do it again. He was nonchalant about the whole thing and how he went around and, and almost with a smile on how he killed him and how he, what he did and how he covered his tracks and stuff like that. Just like in any other day, it's just like you tell me how your, your day was and how it was at work. There has been controversy about Inman's sentence. Some expected the death sentence, others life without parole. In the event, he was given 24 years for all three murders to be served without parole. He's suffering in prison, and he's living with what he did all the rest of his days that he's there. I think what's going to be the most interesting is what happens when he gets out. So what happens then? And that would be the story to cover, to find out, one, has he changed? Is he the same man? Of course, he was boy, he was 21. So is he different? Is he going to do the same thing? Is he going to come back up into this community and live? I think all of that would be very interesting. Stoney McGarriger and Daniel Acton did not deserve to be killed by William Inman, but at least they'd lived a full life. Ricky Flores was a minor, a child in the eyes of the law whose life was taken by a man who considered himself to have just cause. There's some messed up part in his head that, you know, said, if I can kill these people, and, you know, people can't figure out about it, then I'm obviously doing something right. You know, I'm taking bad people off the street. That's what he claimed his thought process was. But really, you know, he was just a skinny, frail boy who lived out east of St. John's, Arizona, that everyone, you know, just knew as the skinny, poor boy, that uh, it's kind of hard to make your name for yourself when you start there. And uh, he just wanted to, to show that he had some sort of power. You know, he wasn't worthless. You know, he, he could make these kind of bad things happen, you know. He thought that he would be remembered as, you know, a mastermind of some sort, but really he was just some dumbass that, you know, wanted to take people's relatives away from them. 
William Nicholas Inman, will be released from prison in 2035. On a cold, dark London evening, a man hauls a heavy bag into the back of a cab. Hours later, he discards it in a canal. It's been a struggle, despite his best efforts, to lighten the load. A body, a human body, is a very unwieldy, heavy, difficult object. And if you can cut it down into pieces, they become more manageable. The next day, a 29-year-old star of BBC soap series EastEnders is reported missing. At first, few fear the worst. People go missing all the time, and we have to remember that adults are entitled to go missing if they, if they want to. Sometime later, a shocking sight confronts a group using a canal for leisure boating. Gemma's skull was found about half a mile upstream of where her torso had been recovered. And they identified this plastic bag and opened it up, and to their horror, there was this head, her skull inside. Murdered, her body had been dismembered and thrown into the water. Who had killed Gemma McCluskey? And what part had her brother Tony played in her disappearance and death? Tony and Gemma are known to have a, a difficult relationship. Gemma's told friends that he can be controlling, he can be abusive. She's told her father that he can be aggressive and abusive. Detectives gather evidence until a picture of a suspect emerges. Which piece of the puzzle will reveal Tony McCluskey as guilty of murder? What would be the killer's mistake? can tell a story if you know how to listen. Dame Sue Black understands the language spoken by all that remains of a body. She knows what should and should not be there, like bruises, cuts, holes, crushed bones. She is a forensic anthropologist. Forensic anthropology comes from two words. The forensic bit is Latin, which means pertaining to the court, and the anthropology bit just means the study of man. So if you were to put them together, it's the study of man for the purposes of the court, but the reality is that it's about identification. So who is the individual? Who was the individual? And can we assist the investigative authorities, whether that's police or otherwise, to determine what might have happened to that individual? Individuals like Gemma McCluskey. Her father spoke outside court after an exhaustive 10-month police investigation which uncovered scarcely believable events. Good night, God bless Gemma. We all miss you and love you. Thank you. So, in effect, two of the children that Tony Senior has are no longer part of his life. And that really was, I think, significant. It would be a grisly murder for the police to solve. 
one featuring tales of abduction, false trails and subterfuge. No one can imagine quite how horrific it must have been to have been told that Gemma had been murdered and that her body had been dismembered, only later to be told that her brother was suspected of being the person who was responsible. The fact that your daughter is, is dead is one thing. The fact that she gets murdered is another. But to be murdered and dismembered and dismembered by your own son or by your brother... Um, it's just, it was just an awful um, time for them. And it is, you know, that part of the investigation kind of still sits with, with me and many of the team in terms of, you know, the impact that that had on, on the family and Gemma's close friends because she was, she did have an awful lot of very close friends. How had police got their man? So-called sororicide, when a brother kills a sister, is very rare. Tony McCluskey had seemed deeply concerned when he first presented at a London police station in the search for the then-missing Gemma McCluskey. He became very involved in the search for Gemma, and because she was, um, she had been on television in a very famous soap opera, so there was there was public interest in what had potentially happened to her, and he had put himself really right at the centre of that search. For her. McCluskey himself is the kind of poster child for his poor missing sister. He's pictured on the, on the, in the Sun newspaper holding a, a missing persons poster. It was a charade. One evening, Tony McCluskey, not for the first time, had become violent towards Gemma. It was devastating violence, and it was violence that was always going to end with Gemma's death. He had grabbed something heavy, smashed it into Gemma's head. She died as a result of blunt force trauma. How that happened, we don't know. He says that um, he doesn't remember what happens, that the last thing he remembers is Gemma coming at him with a knife, and then he can't remember anything after that. To hide his crime, he decided on a grotesque plan of action, to cut her body into disposable parts. And suddenly you're faced with a body and you have the panic that says, how do I get rid of it? The vast majority of dismemberments are solely practical for the means of getting the body either out of the environment in which the murder has occurred or to conceal it in small parts within the area where that murder has occurred. How would the real-life story of the death of a soap star be uncovered? Sue Black's remarkable expertise in forensic anthropology would be vital in revealing the mistake made by Gemma McCluskey's killer. The mystery began when Gemma was first reported missing by her two brothers, one of whom, Tony, walked into a police station on March the 1st, 2012. At first, detectives were not unduly concerned. The first thing that the police will do whenever there's a missing person report is a kind of a, of a mini victimology. So was Gemma vulnerable in any way? Not really, no. Um, were her brothers raising any concerns that they think something serious had happened to her? They may not have been at that point. They certainly said something that they had concerns about her boyfriend. But from the police perspective, there were no real vulnerabilities there and no concerns raised. And perhaps she just was staying with a boyfriend. One day became two. Police and her brothers speculated that she may have gone somewhere. 
perhaps with a boyfriend. There was nothing being said that raised any red flags that something might have happened to Gemma. So it may well have been that they were told, well, let's see, try phoning her, let's try calling her, you know, go and speak to her friends and we'll see what happens over the next 24 hours. Gemma did not appear in the next 24 hours. Her brother, Tony, led a group of over 100 volunteers who leafleted East and South London, looking for leads into Gemma's disappearance, with one hand mysteriously bandaged. He was obviously very convincing. He must have... He was able to convince his brother that he didn't know what happened to Gemma, and he was able to convince the police, so quite possibly, he was presenting as quite calm. Soon to be called into the case, met detective John Nicholson. So Tony was trying to kind of manage the information as it was coming out. He wanted to be the person that was managing that. So at one stage, um, he was informed that the neighbour had heard Gemma crying. And it was the neighbour's daughter who said to him, oh, but what should I do, Tony? Shall I tell the police? And he said, oh, no, 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 leave that with me. I need to speak to your mum first. So, of course, Tony never reported that to the police. And that would have given him a feeling of having some control over where the search went, over who was um, a suspect or who wasn't. And he's the kind of person that needs that kind of control. So it doesn't surprise me that he was right in the centre of everything that was going on. He'd also found out the local community were, you know, they'd put all these leaflets out, people were ringing in. He'd found out, somebody had said that they thought they'd seen a Gemma on the Friday um, at the local kebab shop. So, of course, Tony was happy to pick the phone up to the missing persons inquiry police officer to say, you know, this is what's happened, do you want to get yourself up there? So, in terms of trying to manage and steer the investigation, he was doing what he could to, on the face of it, be helpful, but actually um, not be helpful at all. On day five of the search, Tony contacted police with a chilling message. Someone had tracked him down and ordered him to pay a ransom for the safe return of Gemma. And it would have diverted police attention and because of um, Gemma having been on the television, it was credible that perhaps that had happened to her. Had Gemma been abducted? If so, why wait five days to demand a ransom? Something else was concerning detectives. They were hearing dark mutterings about Tony McCluskey. So what we discovered was that they, you know, there, there was sibling rivalry. Too soon to reach a conclusion, but with no sign of Gemma by day six of the search, detectives were deeply concerned. Where is Gemma McCluskey? In Dundee, where Dame Sue Black was then based, the search for Gemma McCluskey was not on her agenda. Like everybody else, you watch the news, and there was an item about a missing person who had been an actress on a, a soap opera, and that everybody had been out looking for her, including her brother and her family. But that's the level of involvement and knowledge that I had, just the same as the general public. That was about to change. It was a cold, late winter day when a group of pleasure boaters who used this stretch of the region's canal basin in northeast London came across a suitcase floating in the water. 
On colliding with the boat, it sprang open to reveal nauseating contents. There appeared to be a dismembered female body inside. So I, I received a phone call from the Metropolitan Police back in March of 2012. And at that point, they had recovered a torso from Regent's Canal that had been encased within a suitcase. And then they had gone back and they had dredged the canal and they had found um, her limbs as well. At that point, we didn't find her head. Sue Black was able to tell us with accuracy how many and how many cuts had been made. It was March 7th. The forensic anthropologist was not needed to identify whose body parts had been found. We knew it was Gemma. Um, her torso had a very characteristic tattoo at the base of her spine, and they had taken the DNA sample, and they'd been able to compare it with Gemma's DNA. So they knew by that point it was her. Once Gemma's torso has been found and identified by the tattoo on her body, police are now treating this as a murder inquiry. Now it was about finding out who, in fact, was the perpetrator. Investigations follow the evidence. Detective John Nicholson now needed to find out how Gemma had been killed. The body parts were first examined by a local pathologist. At that early stage of the inquiry, he could not determine how the victim had died. And he couldn't make his assessment until all the parts of Gemma's body had been recovered. Um, initially, within the first two weeks, Gemma's um, limbs, her two arms and her two legs, are recovered within the same body of water but further downstream. But we'd never managed to find Gemma's skull. And without that, all the pathologist could say, he could rule out certain things, for example, he could say it wasn't a gunshot wound. But until we recovered Gemma's head, we weren't, he wasn't able to say how she had died. If not how, then when, where, with what, why, and most importantly, to reveal the picture of a killer, who? Gemma's killer clearly had tried to cover his tracks by dismembering her body. Detectives believe that the decision to cut up the body of Gemma McCluskey would reveal some of the answers that they were looking for. It's where Sue Black comes in. Interest in the subject pricked in her childhood. Every Saturday, every weekend, I spent in a butcher shop cutting up meat, rolling meat, understanding bones. She knows all about dismemberment, not a subject just anyone can cope with, but an area of expertise for which she has become world-renowned. And when I got to university, I studied biology. And in third year, I went into anatomy. And it's a relatively straightforward step from the butcher shop into the anatomy so that you see the relationship between human and animal. Crucial facts or probabilities began to emerge as Sue Black considered the evidence in front of her, the body of Gemma McCluskey. First, the very action of cutting a body limb from limb reveals something which is not as obvious as it seems. A murder has usually occurred before you have um, dismemberment. So much more emerges, roughly, where the murder has taken place. 
normally uh, in dismemberments, the, the victim and the suspect know each other. And so it normally occurs in the property associated with one or either individual. It would be extremely rare for a dismemberment to be stranger-oriented. Most of them are because there's been some form of personal conflict between the two individuals. People have described their relationship almost as if her brother was her boyfriend because he behaved in a very possessive and jealous way. He kind of took ownership of her and he tried to control everything that she did, which is classic domestic abuse, classic coercive control. And he was certainly taking the part of a controlling partner. The psychology of cutting a human limb from limb includes overcoming a challenge few would ever consider they would one day face. As the killer cuts the body, a decision has to be made, to face her or not. This too struck Sue Black. That was a question asked of me in court. Was she facing upwards or facing downwards when he took her head off? Because there's some really quite emotive psychology within that in terms of looking at the face of your sister whilst you remove her head. Through forensic examination of the impact of cutting bone, Sue Black was able to discover the answer, to tell the jury of the gruesome ritual which had followed Gemma's murder. She was lying on her back when he started the dismemberment. So when he was working on her right leg, then she was facing upwards. And he really didn't succeed, so he turned her over. And so for the rest of her dismemberment, she was face down. That fact established more evidence. Those who do not know their victim are more likely to keep the body facing upwards. Those who do know them turn their bodies to lie on the front so their eyes cannot be seen. Gemma's killer knew her. Of that, detectives could now be confident. A murder story then of people who know each other well and probably in a property one or other lived or worked in. The body also helps tell why a murder has happened. Analyzing dismemberment reveals the nature of the attack sudden, spontaneous, perhaps after a row. The most common form of dismemberment is that which, is, which occurs as a result of the fact that the individual had not planned it. So there was no planning of the murder. The picture of a murderer was building. Gemma's killer had snapped. He knew her and they were in a building or room one or other owned or worked in. So much revealed by the dismemberment analysis, including an indication of where the body parts would be discarded. There's been a lot of research in terms of dismemberment, looking at what are the common patterns, what is the common means of disposal, where are they going to go. Most, most body parts end up in a body of water somewhere. So they end up in canals or rivers or lakes or in, dropped off at the sea or wherever it may be. We have a tendency to drop into water more frequently than we have to try and bury. Analysis can also say if the act was done by an amateur or an expert. So we were involved in a case in London where the dismemberment was done with such incredible skill that we felt this individual had prior experience. So whether they were a surgeon or a butcher or a gamekeeper 
or something in that sort of line, the body rather than being cut in an amateur way was actually jointed more than dismembered. So we can tell the difference when somebody is a real amateur at cutting a body into pieces or whether they have some experience. Whoever had killed Gemma had no experience and it showed. So we were able to, to advise the police that the first cut started on her right leg. And the cuts that were made there, he started using a normal kitchen knife. It didn't work. There were 56 cuts associated with trying to, to cut through the bone inside her thigh. The dismemberment analysis was yielding results. So we were able to say to the police that this individual who had undertaken the dismemberment was an amateur. They had not done it before. The type of location such a crime has happened can also be gleaned. If a garden implement is used to cut the body, it's likely to be a suburb or the countryside. If not, then probably a kitchen or a bathroom, which indicates a flat or something similar in a built-up area. There is a real pattern of what's available to people within their domiciles that we can predict to a greater or lesser extent. Detectives set about finding and proving a case against the killer. Six months after her arms, legs and torso had been found, more evidence. Another suitcase discovered by those using the canal, this time containing Gemma's head. Her head was identified through dental records, so clearly it was Gemma. And the pathologist said that she had died as a result of blunt force trauma to the head. We said it was most likely to have occurred in her property, most likely in a bathroom area, most likely with an implement that would have been taken from the kitchen as a sharp knife, but that there was, in fact, a heavier blade. There was no garden associated with this flat, so it's unlikely there was a garden shed. It would have been something within the kitchen. She had two, perhaps three, fractures of the skull and that those fractures had taken place while she was alive because there was still blood staining on the skull itself. So he was able to give that. He could dismiss strangulation. She died as a result of blunt force trauma. So Gemma had been hit with great strength, indicating a man. She had been known by her attacker and killed in a place familiar to one or both of them. He was probably a stranger to this sort of crime in a property without a garden, like a flat. He lived not far from water, the likely place to dispatch her remains. He had snapped after some sort of incident, and almost suddenly, Gemma knew her killer. At the point where the police are concerned, they will always be looking to the people closest first, and they will be looking at the behaviours of people around very, very closely, especially as... When a woman is killed, it is more than likely somebody very close to her that has done it. A missing person inquiry had become a murder investigation, and the evidence was closing in on the killer of Gemma McCloskey. Police knew that whoever had killed Gemma had done so spontaneously. He probably had a violent temper and was somebody close to her. Stories were now reaching detectives suggesting a troubled relationship between Gemma 
and her brother Tony, with whom she lived in Pelter Street, Hackney, in London. They had done their background checks on Tony, and they knew that he and Gemma had a volatile relationship and that he was a bully. And I think from a very early stage, they, they had their suspicions about Tony McCloskey. And it fitted within the pattern that there had been conflict between brother and sister. They both had very different personalities. Gemma was very outgoing. She was very socially skilled. She liked her friends. She liked going out. She had a good social life, and she had a very good career as well. In complete contrast, her brother was very much described as a loner, somebody who didn't really have many social skills. He liked to spend a lot of time on his own, and he kind of fixated on his relationship with her as the most important thing in his life. And she she was, she was popular and she was successful and he probably felt a bit jealous of that. Was Tony McCluskey bully enough to have been his sister's killer? It was fair to say they had their ups and downs. It seems that from a very young age he was bullying Gemma, pushing her around, he was hitting her, he was being generally really quite horrible to her. He was six years older, so, you know, big brother probably had quite a lot of control over her anyway but it wasn't a good relationship it wasn't a nice relationship that they had together and that didn't get any better as they got older despite that fact affording a place of their own was made easier by a decision to buy a place together they didn't always fall out but they lived together it was a small house small maisonette off the hackney road in um in the east end of london um gemma was a feisty individual. She had had success in her life. She was very well liked by her family and friends. She had lots of friends, and that was different to Tony. Tony had very few friends. And when the pair clashed in public, mostly written off as just Gemma and Tony at it again. Some of the things will get witnessed and can be interpreted as sibling rivalry or brother and sister fighting, or maybe even people would look at it and think, well, he's a bit of a bully, actually. But they wouldn't necessarily be that concerned. Outside of the family, Gemma would cover for her brother. The thing about domestic abuse is that it's, most of it is hidden. It's inside the, the family home, and perhaps between a, a brother and a sister, they're not going to talk about it to other people. What would make Tony combustible enough to snap and kill his sister? Few knew of the one specific cause of a growing relationship tension. Drugs. Tony was hooked on skunk. Skunk is a form of cannabis. It's a strain of cannabis. It's been created by breeding cannabis plants to get particularly high levels of the active ingredient in cannabis, THC. His life really revolved around um, work, when we could get himself to work, and the fact that he was using skunk as regularly as he did. Gemma was known to argue with her brother about his skunk use. Uh, he didn't like that. His devotion to the drug caused significant and aggressive changes to Tony McCluskey's behaviour. So when you smoke it, um, those usual feelings you, when you get when you smoke cannabis come on faster and they come on much stronger. 
Now, if somebody is susceptible to mental illness, it might exacerbate their symptoms. Um, but it can also trigger kind of psychotic-like symptoms in healthy people who smoke a lot of it as well. So they might start to see things that aren't really there. They're hallucinating. They might start to have delusions where they believe something that isn't really true. It can make them paranoid. Living with that behaviour was probably not what Gemma expected from her brother. The pair often argued. There was a difference between the two of them. And of course, you know, him and his life around skunk and that the violent interaction um, and the arguments. As Tony would use drugs, so he would become violent, turn on his sister. Investigators discover that there were rows between the couple, sometimes over household disputes. And always over Tony's use of skunk, he would fly off the handle. He would react almost immediately to a, a situation which m perhaps many others wouldn't have done. It's perhaps a story as to why this, why this happened. Police did not attach significance to it, but as Tony McCluskey had leafleted to try to find the missing Gemma, he was sporting a bandaged hand. A taxi driver would later say a man, sporting a similarly bandaged hand, got into his cab after loading a heavy case into the taxi's boot. Detective Nicholson had uncovered enough to suggest that impulsive, violent behavior was a very real possibility when dealing with Tony McCluskey. But a key turning point in confirming who was her killer was still to emerge. In the immediate aftermath of the discovery of the suitcase in the canal, there was no doubt who was pushing the campaign to find his sister, Tony McCluskey. But as police began to investigate events, further anomalies appeared in his story. Three days into the search, Tony visits his and Gemma's mum, who was in hospital. He sends a text message saying, kind of, mum's doing fine, I hope you're okay, um, and love you. And he sends a couple of kisses. And of course, during the investigation, we had a look at all the call data and text messaging between the two of them. And um, that was the only time he ever said that he loved her, and the only time he ever put kisses on the text message. He's portraying himself in this text message as a loving brother. That doesn't fit with what other people know about his relationship. That's a glaring inconsistency. He's never said before, I love you. And if you look at that one text message in an isolation, you go, oh, caring brother. If you look at the other text messages he's sent over the weeks and months, that is unusual. Texting the words, love ya, was very much out of character for Tony McCluskey. More inconsistencies emerged. When he came back from the hospital, he came back and he spoke to Gemma's friends and he said that he, his mum had said to him that Gemma had been up there earlier on that day, um, which clearly wasn't true. And uh, one of the friends that he reported that to said, are you absolutely certain about that? And got Tony to ring the hospital to clarify um, if that was the case. And of course, he came back off the telephone, the charade of going through that with the, the telephone, um, with the um, hospital itself and said, no, I kind of, I've, I've made a mistake there. But he was trying to lay, you know, say traps. He was trying to cover his tracks along the way. On March 7th, now a murder inquiry, police asked McCluskey in for an interview. 
When the police re-interviewed him, because he would now be a, a significant witness, and the police would be trying to find out who was the last person to see Gemma alive. And because he lived with her, he was quite potentially going to be the person with that information. And they would have been forensically listening to absolutely everything he said. And when there are inconsistencies in his story, then that is going to raise red flags for investigators. The previously talkative Tony McCluskey suddenly changed his tone. When we spoke to him, he gave a no-comment interview. So they start to ask him more questions, and as those questions become more and more interrogative, and he starts to be treated more as a suspect rather than just a concerned brother, he starts to become very defensive. Police ask him questions, he says no comment. Which is a very strange behaviour for somebody who really wants to find who hurt their sister. Tony seems to be just responding to events as they happen, dealing with them, not in a state of panic, because he does not seem to be in a state of panic, but dealing with them in the way that he thought it was best dealt with. But things were rapidly escalating out of his control. They find that he makes a phone call to a taxi company on the night that they think Gemma disappears. Um, so they go to the taxi company and they um, find the driver who took him and he reports um, that um, McCluskey turned up in his taxi cab with a large suitcase which he claimed was a sound system. The CCTV of him putting the hold all in the boot of the car, they were all really significant pieces of evidence. The mistakes of Tony McCluskey were helping police close in on the man who had murdered his sister. Police were now combing through hundreds of hours of CCTV footage. When he'd left the flat, McCluskey's every move was monitored by cameras. I think a big mistake Tony made was not realising the extent of CCTV cameras, especially in a place like London. They're everywhere. They're recording people's footfall. They're recording traffic movements. Um, you have them outside nightclubs. People, you know, some of these cameras are installed by the police, some of them are installed by local authorities, but increasingly you have private businesses and you have private individuals even installing CCTV cameras, and the police can turn to all of these sources to get images if they have a suspect that they're trying to piece together what they've been up to. It was inevitable. Tony McCluskey would be caught on camera. He took... Gemma's torso in the suitcase and took the suitcase to the local minicab firm. We also know from his call data that he moved around the area that evening and we also know from CCTV that he made at least two trips from the address. So it's conceivable that he had two or possibly three journeys one in the minicab with the torso, and perhaps in the other bags, um, perhaps on foot that evening. McCluskey didn't realise it, but his desperate attempts to conceal the murder were falling into an all-too-predictable pattern for investigators to discover. So this was a classic case of dismemberment for the purposes of transportation. The body was in six parts, 
head, torso not cut, because if you cut across the torso, that makes a tremendous amount of mess. So the torso is intact, and the upper limbs, two upper limbs, and the two lower limbs. The heaviest part, of course, then is the torso. And if you have a large enough suitcase with wheels, and of course that was what happened with Gemma, nobody thinks twice about somebody walking along a pavement carrying a heavy suitcase. Um, and so the trunk is often the most difficult part of the body to dispose of. Having reported his sister missing and led a leaflet campaign to find her, Tony McCluskey was coming into focus as a suspect in the murder of Gemma McCluskey. He was simply unaware of what evidence he had left behind. I think people believe they are more forensically aware than they actually are, and that's largely to do with television telling them, you know, I did this and this is what happened. They then have a go at it perhaps themselves and find that it is not easy. It is a really difficult thing to do, to dismember a body, both psychologically but actually physically as well. This is what had happened that night. Gemma would sometimes lock Tony out of the flat and he would return demanding to be let in. On the night of March the 1st, matters were brought to a head between them because of a flooded bathroom. Barely conscious, probably because of drug use, Tony had left a tap on. They had an argument um, over some, a small flood in, in the, the flat that was his fault. And um, it was the last straw for Gemma, and she had told her friends that she just couldn't take it anymore, and she was going to ask him to leave. Um, and it was on the day that she went missing, in fact, that she'd gone back to the flat to, to tell him that. Gemma had been out collecting a takeaway. Her brother likely to be doing what Tony McCluskey did, getting wasted on skunk. With skunk, you know, there's paranoia. There's, there's delusions where they're starting to believe things that aren't really real. You can see how, you know, like a little argument could blow up into something much bigger. Tony was a person who had no problem resolving his issues through violence. And, and that had been established throughout his life, especially with the way that he interacted with Gemma. And when he had this major argument with her, he responded with violence. Violence which would lead to a suitcase of body parts being thrown into a canal later that evening. Left with his dead sister before him, Tony McCluskey decided to throw his sister's body where he felt it might not be found. The nearest water to Pelter Street is a fraction over a mile at Regent's Canal. Too far to walk with a body. But how to remove Gemma without being detected? It is in this moment of the evening's timeline that Tony decides to chop up his sister's body. Tony did not think things through after he had killed Gemma. One of his biggest mistakes was to try or to think that he could dispose of and hide her body. He thought that that would probably be the easiest thing. It turned out for him that that was his undoing and that was the most difficult thing that he could have done. Tony knows there is nowhere to hide Gemma in his small flat. More clues as to the killer's identity would come in what he did next, because he did not know how to do it. The method of dismemberment becomes apparent. All very amateur. 
initially, Tony uses a knife, and, uh, and that's not successful. He then turned her body over, tried again, and it still wouldn't cut through. He then finds a much bigger blade, probably a meat cleaver. It takes a lot of work to cut a body up into lots of different pieces. Tony McCluskey knows he'll need transport. He doesn't own a car. The reason Tony had called for a minicab to take the torso away is because what could he do? He didn't have a driver license. He'd never, ever driven a car before. He'd never been shown how to drive a car before. He's killed his sister. How is he going to get rid of her body or her torso? And I'm guessing that's what went through his mind. And he thought, well, OK, there's a local minicab firm. A huge mistake for a killer to make. He takes Gemma's torso, as we know, and we thro he throws it into the canal less than a mile away from his house. What we do know is that when it came to the uh, post-mortem, Gemma's torso was um, only weighed five stone. But that in itself, if you're carrying five stone on your own a mile across East London, that was very, very difficult and the risk involved. So we're guessing that that's why he made the decision to, you know, call a minicab firm. By identifying the cab, detectives were able to track it down and check in the boot for evidence which might yield DNA. A spot of blood had leaked from the bag in which Tony had placed his sister's body parts. Once they've found traces of blood, they can then take a swab of that blood, uh, isolate some cells and extract the DNA and try and find out if that blood matches the DNA from the person they're trying to identify, in this case, Gemma. The blood source DNA did match Gemma's. A search of the flat yielded yet more. As predicted by Sue Black, he'd cut up her body in the bathroom where microscopic fragments of her body were found. The case against Tony McCluskey was complete. The blood in the boot of the car, the body matter that is found in the bathroom were clearly significant. The CCTV of him putting the holdall in the boot of the car. They were all really significant pieces of evidence that helped convict him. McCluskey claimed that he had blanked out when he appeared in court on a charge of murder of his sister. If the jury had believed him, the charge might well have been downgraded to manslaughter, which he was prepared to admit. It's possible that he was in some kind of skunk-induced delusion, um, but then it seems unlikely that he wouldn't remember anything. I mean, it takes a lot of work to cut a body up into lots of different pieces, pack them into a suitcase, take the suitcase out, dispose of the body, come back to your flat and then clean the body. That's not something you can do in five minutes. That takes a lot of work and it seems unlikely that he wouldn't be able to remember any of that. So he's, you know, he's continuing to lie either to himself, to other people, to this day, and he's never expressed any remorse. The jury rejected his claim. Ten months after killing her, dismembering her body, dragging it through the streets and casting it into the canal, Tony McCluskey was found guilty of Gemma McCluskey's murder and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 20 years. There's aggravated homicide, so that means that it carries a greater prison sentence. There is the psychology of what he did to his own sister that his family have to now deal with. 
So that was a huge burden that he placed on his family in terms of the desecration of the body of his sister. And that, I think, is where the most challenging thing is for family and for friends and relatives of somebody. Not only have they lost them because they've been murdered, but they've also been dismembered over above that. And the very fact that he was her brother just compounds the difficulty. Gemma McCluskey had achieved what so many young actors aspire to, a role on a prime-time TV soap. She was a success. Her brother was not. The part-time window cleaner was a skunk adult junkie whose violent moods were taken out on his sister with whom he lived. He had made lots of mistakes in his lifestyle choices and after the worst thing he'd done in his troubled life. Ironically, the immediate aftermath of Gemma's life was captured on camera, her brother's mistakes filmed for all to see. And his chosen method of hiding the truth was one which provided a body of evidence, his brutal cuts on Gemma's body betraying his panic, inexperience, even the room that he had done his grisly work and the type of flat that he lived in. A killer's mistakes revealed on a body which sent messages to an expert who knew how to read them. Good night, God bless Gemma. We all miss you and love you. Thank you. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.